0: I'll be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Hear now the Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I, am glor- and I am coming to you. Sorry, I missed a line there. And I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except for the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made them known to your name, made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The grass withers, flowers fade, the word of our God shall stand forever.
1: been said, it's good to see you all this evening and to have this opportunity to gather in this Union surface. John Brown of Edinburgh said of the chapter that you have just had read in your hearing that without doubt it is the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. We confess that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. But I think that I also would confess that among Scripture, John 17 is a very rare and brilliant diamond that shines out from all of Scripture. In John 13 through 17, some would say 14, but I think I would back into thirteen. From John thirteen through seventeen, we have what is entitled the Upper Room Discourse. And it concludes, the Upper Room Discourse concludes with the longest prayer that's recorded in the Bible by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you that you have just had read in your hearing by Pastor Sam. And that is John 17, almost the entirety of the chapter, with the exception of the opening two or three words. That entire chapter is a prayer offered by Jesus, the longest prayer recorded by our Savior in the entirety of Scripture. In the ESV 639 words long. But the scope of the prayer, more impressively, is 2,000 years and counting. And if you want to expand it out in a different way, as A.W. Pink said, this prayer did not pass away as soon as its words were uttered or when Christ ascended to heaven, but retains perpetual efficacy. And this prayer embraces all of redeemed humanity. That means it embraces you if you are indeed redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This prayer provides us a very, very rare insight. We know that Jesus was a man of prayer. We know that He prayed often. We know that He would get up early in the morning and he would go and pray we know that he spent nights alone in prayer but we do not know what he prayed we do not have the content of his prayer our prayers david strain writes that here we get to see jesus jesus's particular burdens here are his preoccupations his great overriding concerns as he heads to the cross. This is what weighed on his mind and occupied his heart. And again, as Pink wrote, in John 17, the veil is drawn aside and we are admitted with our great high priest into the holiest of all. And as another writer would say, as we enter into the holiest of holies, we should take our shoes off because this is where we're entering as we go into this prayer with our Lord. Now, this prayer has been called the High Priestly Prayer, and this title goes back at least to the 5th century with Cyril of Alexandria. And it's been called the High Priestly Prayer because of the parallels that you find between John 17 and Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, the the high priest would first consecrate himself. Then he would consecrate the people. He would intercede on the on, on behalf of the people, and then thirdly, he would offer the sacrifice. And as you go to uh, John seventeen, we read the prayer of Jesus, the great high priest. And in John seventeen nineteen, he consecrates himself. If you have your Bibles and can and can look at John seventeen nineteen. He says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified. And in John uh, seventeen three, he intercedes on behalf of all whom the Father has given him. Uh, this is who he's praying for, for all that the Father has given him. And then the prayer, the focus of the prayer, of course, is the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the prayer is often considered under three basic headings. It's often divided out into three general areas. The first five verses, we have a prayer for glorification, where the focus is on the Messiah's work of redemption. Verses 6 through 19, we have a prayer of preservation, where the prayer focuses on the protection for the disciples, the apostles in particular, so that they would be able to fulfill their mission in this earth. And then in verses 20 through 26, we have a prayer for unification that focuses on the church and all who have faith. And of course, that is inclusive of you and me. And so we, in this prayer, we have prayer for the glory of God, the holiness of believers, the sanctification of believers and the unity of the church. Now, these are the matters that occupies the mind of Jesus as he prays on just hours before he goes to the cross. And as his followers, his disciples of Christ, it seems that these matters should also have priority in our minds, in our prayers, and in our ministries. Now what I want to focus on tonight, or this afternoon, with you for a while, is verse 1. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You. Now, the first five verses of this prayer, this section, this opening section, as you look at it, it's, it's quite clear, and even verse 1, it's, it's quite clear it's dominated by the word glory or glorify. And in these first five verses, the word glorify is there um, in some form, and that word glorify is the same root that we get our word doxology from. We close our services, we'll close tonight with the Doxology. And that's the, that's the same root for the word glorify. But some form of the word glory is used eight times in the prayer, five of those in the first five verses. But you'll notice that Jesus speaks about His glory in verse 1 in the present tense. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. In verse 4, he speaks about it in the past tense. I glorified you, it's past, on earth. And the, the, the idea there is accomplished. I have accomplished what you've given me to do. Uh, Carson, Kostenberger, and other theologians make a point that the, the tense that he uses here, Christ uses here, is the same tense that you find in 9, John 19, 13, 30, excuse me, when Jesus says, it is finished. It's completed. It's done. We're going to loop back to that, I hope, toward the end tonight. And so this is a past tense reference. So he starts off by, in the uh, uh, present tense, in verse 4, the past tense, in verse 5, it's a future tense where Jesus is speaking about, contemplating, and even, even petitioning the glory that lies ahead of Him as He contemplates the glory that will be His again that He had with the Father. Uh, uh, let me read verse 5. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. It's, it's past and yet it's future. When the cross is done, all is said and done, the glory that I had with you this is what I'm anticipating again so it's past its present and its future so we start with a basic question and that question is what does it mean to glorify particularly we want to ask that question as it deals with the petition in verse 1 what does it mean to glorify but in a general way, what does it mean to glorify? (coughs) You can say that it means to exalt and honor God. That's the definition of glorify. It is to declare and to acknowledge the excellencies and the perfections of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation declares the glory of God. How does it do that? What is it doing? We talk about well, we sing the song "How Great Thou Art," and people talk about they love to see um, and look at the, the beautiful creation that God has made and how it attests to the very being of God Himself. What are, what are they talking about? They're talking about how that the creation itself is an expression. It attests to the very. Sovereignty, the greatness, and the power, the, the existence of God. And so, creation glorifies God. It attests to His very being. And that's one of the definitions of to glorify, is to declare and acknowledge the perfections of God. But more specifically, what I want us to consider is what did Jesus mean? In verse 1, when he said, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, we should note, I think, that whatever Jesus means or meant, we need to understand that the primary request of this petition is not the glory of the son but the glory of the father glorify me that i may glorify you look if you have your bibles look at what christ prays the hour has come glorify your son why that the son may glorify you so the end of the petition is the glory of the father so that's what he's asking and secondly, we need to understand, and we see this in verses 2-4, through four, that glorifying the Father is inseparably bound to the Son's redemptive work. Because as soon as He makes that petition in verse 1, He says in verse 2, since you have given Him authority over all flesh, and people get in themselves in a tizzy, but you mean God is in control and I don't have control over God and my will doesn't trump God's will? And you go, well, actually not. Because Christ just said, and He just made the statement, that the Father has given Him control and authority over all flesh. Why? To give eternal Life to all whom you have given Him. And the very essence and heart and marrow of what is going on here is redemption. And so the purpose in the end of the prayer is the glory of the Father and it's directly tied to the redemptive work of Christ. You see that? So let's look at the prayer in a general way. Let's start with what we'll call the prologue, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, and that takes us back, these words, directly back to John 13 through 16, the upper room discourse. In the hours just prior to His arrest, Jesus has spent time instructing, encouraging His apostles. So just prior to that, when Jesus had spoken these words, when He would finished speaking these words, now He prays. So having faithfully taught His disciples, Jesus turns from preaching to praying. As Matthew Henry would put it, It was a prayer after a sermon. When he had spoken from God to them as a prophet, he turned to speak to God for them as their priest. Prophet, priest, and king. So he has spoken the Word of God to them. Now he's speaking to God for them. And now we look at, so that's the the prologue, what I'll call the prologue, when he had spoken these words. Secondly, we look at what I'll simply call the prayer's address. Again, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. And the prayer, he begins with the title of affection, of relationship and trust, and that is the title, Father. And as Pastor John pointed out this morning, that is the way that our Savior often, almost without exception, I believe, as you said this morning, addressed God, except for one occasion on the cross where He said, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the amazing truth is, Christ is the eternal begotten Son of God, you and I have that same almost unspeakable privilege as creatures of dust, of addressing the Creator of heaven and earth, my Creator, as Father. And it's almost unthinkable that I would start praying without so addressing God because it is an address of relationship. I have been adopted into the family of God and it is an address of fellowship with my Savior and my brother the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is also an address of trust to my Father. And it's also an address that shows our relationship in Christ. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. And so he begins the the prayer with this address. And then he makes the statement, the hour has come. Now repeatedly in the Gospel of John, we read, the hour has not yet come. In John 2.4, at the wedding of Canaan, Jesus said to Mary, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In Jerusalem, in John 7.30, they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. At the temple, they would arrest Him in John 8.20, but they did not arrest Him because His hour had not yet come. But you see a shift in John, in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. In John chapter 12, from that point on we find a shift in that hour. And from there on we find that the hour has come. In John 12, 23, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and that's where he loved, having loved his own, he loved them to the end, and he binds himself and he washes his disciples' feet. And then in John 17, 1, where we just read, Father, the hour has come. Well, what is that hour? Well, we know there was an hour that was established for Jesus to enter the world. In Galatians 4, verse 4, we read, but when the fullness of time had come, when time was filled to full expectation, the woman who's expecting a child comes to full term, and, and there's there's no, more, there's no more time for waiting. The time has come. She is going to bear that child no matter where she is. No matter what's going on, the time has come. That child will be born. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. There was a time appointed, an hour, a moment that was appointed by God and, that, and for His Son to be born into the world. And we also know that there was an hour appointed for Jesus to depart this world. And until that hour came, they tried to arrest him, they tried to kill him, they tried different things, and they could not do it because his hour had not come. But you know what? It's nothing different for you. There was an hour appointed for you to be born. And there was an hour, and there is an hour, appointed for you to die. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Those are appointed. So in that way, I'm not different from Christ, but this hour Christ is speaking about is different. This hour that He's talking about it's different. This is a long-awaited promised hour. This hour is promised in the covenant of grace. It's revealed in the gospel. It's first declared in what is called the proto-evangelium. That where it's Genesis 315, where the gospel is preached by God, and Adam hears it, where the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. First Gospel Declaration. It's an hour when the covenant of redemption, that blood of the everlasting covenant that the writer of Hebrews speaks about, the eternal divine agreement of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son, to to save a people that was chosen before the ages began intersects time. Something that happened before there was time, before there was anything, is purposed, that hour intersects time. When the Lamb that Scripture refers to as being slain from the foundation of the world actually is nailed to the cross and is actually slain. Or as the psalmist puts it, That I love so well. That hour when steadfast love and faithfulness meet. That hour when righteousness and peace kiss each other. That hour when faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Psalm 85 verses 10 and 11. It's that hour when the hounds of hell are loosed against the Lord's anointed. Until this hour, they are kept at bay. They're kept locked away. But now, his hour has come, and they're freed. Before they couldn't arrest him, They couldn't touch a hair of his head. But now they can. And this is also man's darkest hour. The sin of Adam is sometimes referred to as cosmic treason because it plunges the entire cosmos into disorder and disarray. And I used when I was young, we took, standardized test and on the cards it would say do not bend spindle or mutilate and that's what i think of when i think of the sin of adam it bends spindles and mutilates the cosmos that's what that's the result of sin man that was the image of god glorified god is now a broken cistern And we're an idol. We don't represent God correctly. And creation that he made that was beautiful and perfect and pristine is corrupt. And that which was the friend of Adam turns against him and it brings forth thorns and thistles. And God says, now by the sweat of your brow you'll make your living until from the dust you came to the dust you'll go back. And now we have all kinds of things that are after us to get us little things and big things and middle sized things. And one day something will get us. Because the environment I live in is no longer my friend, it's my foe. So the sin of Adam is cosmic treason, but in this hour, men would commit theocide. They would kill God. And they did. The God-man. And all the evil perpetrated in the world we think of. Cain rising up and killing. The mass killings just recently in Uvalde. The current war in the Ukraine and Putin and all of his wickedness. In the world, 73 million abortions per year in this world. None of that evil matches this hour. Because all of the sin that has ever been paid for passed from to bear in this hour. In one place, in one location, in one man. In Christ. It's all there. As Paul would say, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who you know sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And thirdly, as we look at the prayer in its entirety, I would say, let's note the epilogue. In the epilogue I would call John 18.1, We looked at the the words prior to the prayer. Now let's look at the post. And that is when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And of course now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so there, there is the epilogue. Just a post, just a brief word about it. Kidron means to mourn, to be dark. It means to be full of darkness. And the Kedron Valley and the Kedron Brook are associated with dark events as you read the scriptures. David crossed the Kedron Brook as he fled from Absalom during the revolt. And we read in 2 Samuel 15, 23 that he went up the Mount of Olives, barefoot, weeping, and with his head covered. And he crosses the Kidron Brook. And he's going from Absalom. Broken. Lamenting. Shimei, who cursed David, was allowed by David's son Solomon to live as long as he stayed in Jerusalem. But if he went out of Jerusalem... And the boundary was the Kedron. If he crossed the Kidron brook, his life wasn't worth a plug nickel. And then one day some servants ran away and Shimei got the word where they were and he got on his donkey and he went out and Solomon got the message and he had him executed. But the Kedron was the point. And the Kidron Valley became a dumping ground for bodies. It became a graveyard. And it was in the Kedron that you had uh, um, idols burned. And the Kedron is just a dark place as you read the Scriptures. And as we leave the epilogue of the prayer, of the high priest, priestly prayer, Jesus finishes, he leaves the upper room, he crosses the Kidron... Goes to the garden, and what happens there? There's another prayer. And I really don't know what all he prayed. I know just a little bit of what he prayed, but I really don't know what he prayed. But there he goes and prays, and I pray, I, I compare the uh, Gethsemane. Through the years, I have compared it to the outer bands of an approaching hurricane. Particularly living in this part of the country, we know sort of what that's like. You get a hurricane that's coming in, and you get the outer bands, the squall lines, and they come in first. That's not the hurricane; that's just the, the squall lines, the outer bands that come in, and they come in, and you get a, a you know the wind, the rain, a lashing, whatever, and they pass through. You can look at the map and you can see the monster of the storm out here somewhere. And you can just see those fingers right, that come off the storm. And you go, well, that was just a band. We just, got a, we, just got, we just got one of the bands that came through. We haven't been hit yet. That's Gethsemane in my, in my mind. That's where Christ is praying if it be possible, take this cup from me. That's the outer bands. That's the, that's the squall line crossing over. And I think to understand the prayer of John 17, which precedes that one, you gain insight into the mind, the heart, the motives, and the commitment to Christ. And it sets the stage for Gethsemane. And it helps us then to begin to sound the depths Of the nature of sin what it is that Christ is dealing with and the price of redemption and the singular nature of the Redeemer that what Christ is going to do no one else can do and of the commitment of Christ and of the love and grace of God the Father who gave his son for our salvation and the love and grace of Christ who gave himself to redeem us. You begin to see that as you go through John 17, you move to Gethsemane and you back those in and you see them side by side as it were. So now let's go to the petition. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Turn with me, if you will, uh, to Isaiah. I'll do, this, I'll do this quickly. I'll try to do this quickly. In Isaiah, we have four servant songs, and I want to just, just mention them as we go through this. To give you a context, a historical prophetic context, to help you understand that Petition. In Isaiah, we have four servant songs that describe the service, the suffering, and the glorification, the exaltation of Christ. In the first song, which is in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, the Lord's servant establishes justice. Um, If you would look in your Bibles in Isaiah 42, and I'll just read a couple of verses. Chapter 42. Verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I behold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then in verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. In verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he hath established justice in the earth of justice. This servant's going to establish justice. Then the second song is in Isaiah 49, the first six verses. And this servant is great, and he's glorious. And he's too great and glorious to simply be the Savior, uh, to serve as the Savior of Jacob or Israel only. In fact, he's so great that God says, you've got to, be, you're, you've got to have more than just simply Israel. You're, you're too big for just that. And, and so in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah um, uh, 49, he says of him, um, and now the Lord says, He formed me from the womb to be servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's too. This is too small. You've got, got to be more because you're too great. And then the third song, The faithfulness of the servant is declared, and that's in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. But his faithfulness will result in his suffering. Notice in Isaiah 50, verse 6, he says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So he's faithful, but his faithfulness is going to result in his suffering. And then the fourth song goes in Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through Isaiah 53. And in this fourth song, different strands are brought together from the other songs. But it becomes very clear that the glory, and that's what we're after, the glory of this servant is going to be achieved through suffering. Look at Isaiah 52, uh, verse 12. Excuse me, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. he's, He's going to be glorified. He's going to be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of all the children of mankind. And then as you read on into Isaiah 53, you find out that the one that's going to cause his suffering is Yahweh. Look at Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We could spend time there, but I'll not. So we go back to our prayer and we ask the question with that context sort of sitting in our minds. There's a lot of ways we can answer the question, what does Jesus mean when He says, Father, glorify Your Son? But one way we can answer that question is to see how the Father answered the petition. How did the Father answer that petition? I've already said it. Let me say it again. How did God answer that petition of Christ? Well, he answered that petition by giving Jesus over to wicked men and inflicting him with sufferings. Well, wait, I thought he prayed to be glorified. And you just said that he answered the petition by giving Him over to wicked men and by inflicting upon Him sufferings? I did. At Calvary, God is glorifying His Son by revealing that He is Christ and by declaring His character and the excellencies of this person and declaring this is my son and his confidence that his son will accomplish the mission. In Acts 2.23, we read this, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was the purpose and plan of God that Christ would be crucified. And this is what happens at Calvary. And God delivers him over to the hands of wicked men. Father, my hour has come. Glorify me. This Jesus is the promised Messiah, the eternal Son of God, and He enters into eternal covenant with the Father. This is the definite plan. And at the cross, the wickedness of men are poured out on Him. And this is a declaration of the truth that He's the God-man that crucified. Isaiah 53, 4, what I just read says, Surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We've been studying Revelation and Bible study here, but in John chapter 5, verse 4, John is heard weeping loudly. And why is he weeping loudly? Because no one is worthy to open the scrolls, nobody can do this. And yet someone comes to John and says, "Don't weep. There's one that is worthy. There's one." And who is that one? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, and what does he see? He sees the lamb. But not just a lamb, a lamb has been slain. The lamb that is the redeemer. And then what happens when He sees the Lamb? Listen. In in, in Revelation 5, He says, Then I look and I heard around the throne after seeing this Lamb. This is the response. And the living creatures and the elders and voice of many angels, numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four, king, excuse me, the four living uh, creatures said, Amen. And the the elders fell down and worship. And this is all at the cross, through the cross, through the Lamb giving Himself and the Father pouring out uh, the wrath of God upon His Son. In the cross is declared the identity of the Son, the devotion of the Son, the obedience of the Son, the love of the Son, the worth of the Son. The Son is glorified. He's magnified. There is no other Savior. Only one can do this. And then in the Son's sufferings, the betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, the giving of the vinegar, the very crucifixion of the malefactors, the, the casting of the lots, the piercing of the side with the spear, the very crucifixion, his burial in the, in, the, in the sepulcher of Joseph, all are fulfillment of prophecies and all attest that this Jesus is the Son of God. And the Son glorifies the Father. How? What was the chief end of what Jesus did? What did He accomplish? As John Howell wrote, it ought deeply to be considered as a truth, both of the clearest evidence and the greatest importance, that the principal end of our Lord's undertaking and office was not the salvation of men, but the glory of God. I know I must wrap all this up somehow. But here's the question we ask. What is the chief end of man? And how will that be accomplished? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And a lost sinner will not bring that glory to God like the redeemed sinner. It's a redeemed sinner. And they certainly do not enjoy him forever. And at the cross, Christ redeems sinners that become worshipers of God. And not only that, he redeems the very creation itself. Well, I've got to quit. I want to close with this. Go back to verse 1 for just a moment. Verse 1 says When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And said you remember the prayer in Gethsemane? who heard that prayer? Who heard Jesus pray? What were the rest of the, what were the disciples doing? So how do we have a record of it? As far as I know, it would just be direct revelation right? The other prayers that we have of Jesus, we know He prayed. I mentioned this at the beginning. We know He prayed, but we don't have a record of it. This one we do. And it's very clear that Jesus, it seems to me, deliberately prayed audibly in front of His disciples. Now, why would He do that? Why would He do that? All the other times, we don't have anything. It's just silence. just quiet. And now I have a prayer. And it seems that the intention here is that they will hear this prayer. And then one other thing. In verse 4, I've already pointed this out. In verse 4, this prayer is based upon His accomplished work. Even though He hasn't yet gone to the cross, even though He's not yet been buried and stayed in the grave three days and been resurrected, He's not yet ascended, yet He speaks of this as all having been done. I have accomplished the work You gave Me to do. So all of this is being spoken upon, upon based upon the accomplished work of, of Christ. And one of the things that we emphasize is it is finished. And that's been done for years, particularly in, let's just say, um, our particular bend in understanding of Scripture. And part of that is response to uh, Roman Catholicism and the the concept of the Mass, where Christ is sacrificed you every time Mass is celebrated. And, And it's in response to purgatory where after a person dies and even though they've been saved and redeemed they still got to they still must go to purgatory and spend some time there to get totally sanctified before they can go on to glory and we respond no that's not right that's not right that's not correct we respond but when Christ had offered for a time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God for by a single offering He has perfected for all times those who have been sanctified. It took but one sacrifice and He did it one time and that's it. Amen. It's finished. And we take our stand. Right there. And that's why we're so hard on John 19.30. It is finished. It's done. But I'm afraid sometime when we do that, we've had this idea notion in our head that Christ isn't doing anything else. Oh, but He is. He is still the great High Priest. And let me read you another passage from Hebrews. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since... He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus deliberately prayed so they could hear Him. He's going away. He promised them the Holy Spirit. But He's acting as their high priest. And that's not done. That work goes on. That work of intercession. When John Knox, great Scottish reformer, was alive, he often had this he often read this prayer. When he was dying, he asked his wife Margaret, actually she asked him, where do you want me to read to you from the Bible? And he said, well, you can read where I first put my anchor down. And so she turned to John 17 and read it. And as she finished it, he said, Oh, what a comfort that chapter is. Recently, after the shooting in Texas a democrat representative by the name of Ruben Gallego made some very very profane statements about prayer very profane statements about prayer and that's the way a lot of people think about prayer it's just a waste of time and the sputterings and utterings of weak people I was talking recently with a person who's still very much grieving because of loss of their spouse. Live alone. They're not well. You get up in the morning, you have hope. You go to bed night, you probably have hope. I don't know if this person has any hope left. What, what, what do you say to folks like that? When, As a believer, when we hear this chapter read or when we read this chapter, we're reminded that our great high priest is in glory and he is interceding. And this is what's on his mind and heart right here. And listen to what he says. Father, I'm praying for the people whom you gave me out of the world. I'm not praying for the world. Father, keep them... Those that you gave me, keep them in your name. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Father, I pray that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me before the foundation of the earth. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love of which you love me may be in them and I in them. This is the prayer of our great high priest. And he still prays for his people. And I pray that you'll be encouraged by that and that you can boldly go to the throne of grace knowing that you have this great intercessor on your behalf let's pray together holy father we're grateful for our lord and savior jesus christ who loved us so that he went to the cross and nothing could prevent his going and that even as he prepared for the cross that we were on his mind his heart and his prayers and then as he rose and ascended into glory and even now we are on his mind, his heart, and in his prayers. Help us, Lord, to remember these truths as we go through life and the difficulties of it. When we sin, and sin seems to conquer us, may we run boldly and come quickly to our Savior. Thank you, Father, for giving us the record of this high priestly prayer of our Savior. And it's in his name I do pray. Amen. Amen. I want to stand and we'll close. uh, We'll sing hymn 272. 272.